The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. It's about the new order of the ages that God, that in their Latin, our founding sages, God gave us his approval of. I'll just have to get through as I can. That was Robert Frost, the 86-year-old poet, reading at the inauguration of President John F. Kennedy in 1961. It was a remarkable incident. Frost, who was probably America's most beloved poet at the time, although also one of the most misunderstood, as we'll talk about today. Frost had written a poem particularly to welcome into office his fellow New Englander, John F. Kennedy, the young, handsome, charismatic war hero, JFK, who brought an enthusiasm for poetry and the arts that I don't think we've had in the White House before or since. So here's JFK in the background, impossibly handsome. And here's Robert Frost, white-haired and a little dazed. And Frost can't read his poem. The glare of the sun on the paper turned his paper into a white mirror. So he stumbles a little. And as always in these cases, one thinks of senility and so forth. And JFK, you can see, has that kind of concerned smile that you wear when you're not sure if you should jump up and help someone or if that would only make things worse. And suddenly, a hand appears, holding a top hat. The top hat tilts toward the paper, providing a block to the sun that might help with the glare. Some aide has figured out quickly that Frost's problem was the glare of the sun and maybe there was a way to help. This aide jumped up and immediately came to Frost's rescue. Quick thinking, there to salvage what might otherwise have been a very awkward moment at the inauguration. Who came to his assistance? (laughs) Richard M. Nixon, the sitting vice president, the man JFK had just beaten in a hard-fought campaign. Fascinating stuff. Frost didn't quite recover enough to read through the glare, but he recited another poem from memory and he became the second most famous performer for JFK. We know the first. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Oh, Norma. That is another incredible video, all available on YouTube. And it's a story for another day. She was sewn into that dress. My goodness. But we're here to talk about Robert Frost today and a different incredible story. It's a story I'd never heard about how Frost moved to London in search of a friend and looking to generate some interest in his poetry, trying to launch his poetry career. He wound up meeting Ezra Pound, but that fell through. And then he met kind of a soulmate, and he wrote a poem about him, and the whole thing ended up in tragedy. Not just a tragedy as in the loss of a friendship, but real tragedy as in a deep misunderstanding that ends in death. We'll have our old friend Professor Bill Hogan here in a minute to tell us all about it. 
and to tell us that America's favorite poem, maybe the most popular poem in America, has been widely or wildly or widely and wildly misunderstood. That's coming up. Hey, have we done any kind of introduction yet? I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature. How's that for gusto? Man. We're coming to you ad-free today. That's a new thing we're trying out. I know a lot of you are saying, Jack, how can you pay your bills without advertising? And I say, I can't. (laughs) In fact, I cannot. So, we're going ad-free. It's a step in the wrong direction, you might think. On the other hand, not a huge fan of ads. Nothing against our advertising partners. They are wonderful. But there are a couple of issues with ads. One, I want to experience for I want the experience for you, the listeners, to be as good as possible. And the second issue is that people have said, Hey Jack, I want to support the show, but I already have a subscription to Audible. I bought it before I ever met you, Jack. And I have all these other possibilities too. Offers from everything from Eyeglasses to underwear to all sorts of products. I thought Audible made the most sense. It's a good product and good synergy with the show. It's books, after all. But for users who want to throw a few bucks my way, but who aren't inclined to sign up with Audible or who already have Audible, or maybe they don't mind paying for Audible, but who would rather just give me a few dollars, buy me a coffee, well, that's just flattering. I'm completely flattered. I don't know what else to say other than thank you. So I'm trying to work something out for you people, too. We will keep you posted. In the meantime, this episode is 100% ad-free. Ad, is, there, is there a better way? Is that the best word for ad-free? Sans advertise. What? <laughs> Gar? Commando. Gar says... We're going commando. I'm not sure that's actually how that word is used, but... but, Well, okay. Let's go to an email. Hi, Jack. It's the mail guy from Sweden again. Yes! Oh, yes! I was so excited when I saw this email. We've been talking about the mail guy from Sweden, that guy who sent us an email telling us how lonely he is working in the post office in Sweden, how the show has helped him kill a few hours. So glad to hear from the, from the man, the mail guy from Sweden, one of my favorite emailers ever. He says, when you mentioned me in your podcast, I was so thrilled. It must be weird sharing so much of your life without knowing anything about your listeners. So I thought that I'm going to write you a, a small part from my life, or maybe it's just my ego milking the last bit of attention that you gave me. Or maybe an argument to make an episode about Franz Kafka. Okay. I'm on board. Mail guy from Sweden. Let's hear it. How did you wind up in the post office? Well, it turns out the post office was not his first job. The email continues. My first job was in an elderly home in the community where I live. Other elderly homes were called the Sunnyside or peace. But the name of this place was 
Courted Zen Henderson. <laughs> I'm going to butcher this. For some reason, I have this in very small font. And I don't know Swedish. Courted Zen Hitten, which could be translated into the short time unit. It was the cheapest elderly home where old people were sent when their families got tired of them. Much like the waiting room at the dentist, but instead of waiting for a doctor, these people were waiting for their own death. Ooh. Wow. That's very vivid. What a job. The male guy from Sweden writes, Since I had no education or anything useful to contribute, I was hired to entertain the old people. My assignment was to entertain the worst crowd in the world. Abandoned, dying people. Mm. Mm, my friend had a job like this. Male guy from Sweden. He called me up one day looking for advice. <laughs> he would come bounding into a room to show the crowd a video or run some kind of game. And nobody cared. Nobody wanted to participate. But everyone showed up. And then they told him to get a special driver's license. People he worked for wanted him to get this special driver's license so he could drive this little bus full of people to the park. And he called me up because he was dreading the prospect. He couldn't stand the idea of taking this group of people who didn't really want to go anywhere. And he said he was looking for an excuse not to. And he had only come up with one so far. I was giving him a bit of a hard time. You know? Wanted him to find some empathy, find some room in his heart, take people to the park. Although, if it's against their will, it's a tough thing. It's a really tough thing. Tough job. So I, I pressed him. I said, well, what? What kind of an excuse do you have? And he said he wasn't sure if it was a good enough excuse. And I said, well, okay, what, what is it? And he said, I don't feel like it. That was his excuse. That was all he had. I don't feel like it. And he said, can I just tell them I don't feel like it? Oh, so much sorrow in that story. So much sorrow in the world. Back to the email. Pretty soon, I got that this was more or less a made-up job to improve the... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. The email is incredible. Pretty soon, I got that this was more or less a made-up job to improve the employment statistics in the town. <laughs> This is a great email. He says, I dragged around the corridors with an empty feeling, and I remembered thinking, is this what working is? My first encounter with adulthood was absurd and pointless. Then I met Evan. He was one of the Parkinson victims, and I had to help him light his cigarettes because his hands were shaking too much. Unlike the others, this man was all clear in his head, and we had conversations about life that I couldn't have with anyone else my age. At some point, he told me that he had been working with writing manuscripts to the radio theater. He had spent his whole life writing, but now he was not even able to light his own cigarettes. 
He gave me Kafka's The Trial. I don't know if it was the situation to read Kafka in, or if it was this old, charismatic man, but ever since, I have been reading like a maniac. Thank you for a great show, Jack. And one more thing. Do you have any advice for someone young trying to write fiction? That's the end of the email. Oh, man, what a great email from our male guy in Sweden. So many things come to mind here. First of all, yes, you don't need to put in your pitch for a Kafka episode. Kafka will be an episode, probably more than one. He's in my personal pantheon of favorite writers. But more to the point, secondly, I think you are already well on your way to writing good fiction. Write about this job. Very vivid. It would make a remarkable story. As for advice, that's a little tougher. Most advice is a bunch of hooey crap. That, <laughs> the advice is either something you already know or something that doesn't apply to you. It always comes across as pretentious. So I'll throw out a few things to try to be helpful, but keep that in mind. Advice is usually terrible. Full of tips, suggestions, and lots of, I don't know, tells you more about the advice giver than anything that you can really use. Keep that in mind, but I'll give you, I'll give you three tips. The third one has three parts. First, read a lot. Enough said. Second, write the kind of thing you'd like to read. If you like Kafka, write stories like Kafka. Don't try to write the Da Vinci Code just because that sold a zillion copies. But if you do like thrillers, let's say you can't get enough of religious conspiracy thrillers, then by all means, knock yourself out. Third, don't let anyone stop you. That's the key. Don't let anyone stop you. But guess what? The key has three parts. I'm going to break it down for you. The first part is, don't let the people in your life stop you. Some bullying older sibling, or maybe an older sibling who's a better writer than you, or so you think, or a younger sibling. Or maybe it's your parents who want to stop you, or a friend, or a lover. If someone is disparaging you or your efforts or you're looking at them and thinking you don't measure up, just disregard them. Maybe they're expressing concern. Maybe it's genuine. Or maybe they aren't very positive people for you. You have to be able to ignore them and fight your way through. Hopefully, there's no one like this holding you down, telling you you're wasting your time or sheepishly saying things like, I just don't see you as a writer. I just, and you know, I've, I've read some things of yours and I, I, I don't want you to waste your time. I want you to be happy. Set those people aside. Part two, all the gatekeepers the professionals, the critics, the naysayers, the doubters, people in the establishment, or even not, even just people online, people with lots of opinions, other authors who are snobs, 
or agents or editors or publishers or whoever, whoever else is out there granting permission for this or for that, for you, those days are over. Now you just go and go and go and let the gatekeepers catch up with you if they want to, if they can, and if you want to let them. In part three, the biggest obstacle of all, yourself. Don't let yourself get in your way. That nagging voice that says you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Don't listen to that guy. He'll have all kinds of clever arguments because he knows you so well. He knows exactly what will work with you, right? He knows all your sensitive spots. He knows what buttons to push. Maybe he'll say you're not good enough. Maybe he'll say you aren't smart enough or that you're too unlucky or undeserving or or just waiting for the right time or that you don't have enough time or you don't have a good enough subject or you aren't original. He'll figure out what will work best for you, against you, And that's what he'll say. You can't, you can't, you can't. Well, Jack's here to tell you, you can. And that's for all you writers out there and all you would-be actors and entrepreneurs and artists and community organizers and craftsmen and local politicians and everyone else looking to do something a little different. Your voice is in there, that that fiendish person inside. You can't, you can't, you can't. Well, tell that person to sit down and be quiet. Or, as my teachers used to say, sit down and shut up. Because <laughs> I was taught by Mel Blank. Because you know a guy, your old friend... Jack Wilson, who knows you just as well as they do, and he has a different message. His message is, you can. You can, you can, you can. Okay. Here's a guy who didn't seem to have that nagging internal voice, the the one telling him he couldn't. We're talking today about the confident and self-assured Robert Frost, who knew what he was about and what he wanted his poetry to do. And we're going to talk about his friendship with another man who did have more of a nagging internal voice, and, and his internal voice was shouting at him all the time. And when the two of them interacted, it was powerful. Sparks flew, metal pounded metal, and freshly minted poetry came out of the forge. Here we go with Professor Bill Hogan of Providence College, expert in modernist poetry, and the story of Robert Frost searching for a friend. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, so why don't we start in 1912 when Robert Frost, who was then almost 40 years old and he had published a handful of poems, and he decided to move to England. He took his wife and his four kids. Why did he do that? Well, he was, I think, desperate for a kind of change of pace. He'd been living Mm. in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. His parents had set him up with a farm and his farming career, which he'd been doing for maybe eight or ten years, uh, wasn't going that great. And I think he just was looking to jumpstart his literary career. Mm. So he, he was a farmer, but he wanted to be more of a poet and to find more success. Yeah, and he'd been teaching as well mm-hmm. at a private school in New Hampshire. And yeah, I think he was ready for a change. And it, it, what's interesting is he basically showed his family I think he had two children at the time. He showed he showed them, you know, we're either going to England or we're going to go west. Yeah, Vancouver. And, yeah, and um, <laughs> they basically threw a dart at the map. <laughs> and it, within a few weeks, they were on their way to London. So, wow, a major change. And so did he have the idea that he was going to run down publishers when he was there or be part of a literary scene or was he yeah, looking for I, a mentor or... I think he knew that there was a literary scene there. I mean, Yeats mm-hmm. was in London, and he, Ezra Pound was in London. And Pound at that point was not actually that well-known, although he was starting to become well-known. But he knew that there was a big poetry scene in London and felt that he could become part of that. So he went specifically with, with the ambition in mind that he was going to meet, uh, meet Yeats. He was going to go to some of these salons and uh, meet some of these figures who were in London, and that would be a way to get his poetry known. Okay, and basically his calling card was, I've published a few poems in uh, some small literary magazines in America. Here I am. That is true, but at at the same time, some of his best-known poems that ended up in his first volume, A Boy's Will, had been written while he was working at the dairy farm. So poems like After Apple Picking and, you know, some of those famous poems that we associate with Frost he had already. It sounds crazy for him to have done this, but he had some serious work under his belt already. Okay. And then he did meet Ezra Pound, right? He did. And Pound was a very powerful personality. And it seems like he 
gave Frost a lot of indication that he was going to promote his work and mm-hmm. and then didn't follow through. Mm. And Frost was really, I mean, I think Frost basically wanted, had had some kind of financial interest. Like he needed to have his poems <laughs> circulated. We well, had four so kids. What, right. And so when Pound... <laughs> didn't follow through it was a problem so he yeah and, and he also after after a time he thought pound was like an egomaniac and just not somebody who was going to give him what he needed which was to have his poems circulated to the important figures in london at the time there's some interesting stories too about when frost first arrived he's just kind of walking around london and happened upon the, the poetry bookshop which had been opened i think in 1911 in the pre-war years by harold monroe Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a center of the London poetry scene. Rupert Brooke would read there and Yeats would, would go there and have a reading. And it was just a place where things were happening. And Frost is just walking around the neighborhood and sees this sign, the poetry bookshop, and that there was a reading that night. And he went in and said, you know, could I come to the reading tonight? And they said, oh, it's invitation only. But he came anyway. And that's <laughs> where he met, started to meet some of these people like Pound and, and Yeats and so on. Right. And then he met somebody who turned out to be quite important in his life and vice versa, Edward Thomas. So how did he meet Edward Thomas? Thomas was basically a hack prose writer and hack and only in the sense that this is the way he made his living. Mm -hmm. Um, He would do prose books on commission. He'd often write nature books. He, he, for example, would take a journey from London to, to Cornwall and write about the landscapes that he saw along the way and he could find commissions for books like this. So right. he and and he was reviewing books of of fiction and poetry in the journals of the day. So Thomas was kind of a man of letters, I yeah. suppose. I read um, that he wrote uh 2000 reviews. Unbelievable. I mean incredibly prolific and by all accounts a really serious reviewer, which is interesting. In other words, you know, some people might when they're writing in that volume not take seriously the task of reviewing the latest book or or whatever. But Thomas was a very careful reader. And, for example, he was writing a review for two different journals of the same book of poems. He would read the, you know, make sure that he had a different take on the volume Hmm. for both outlets. You know, he was a, a very careful reader and a serious student of literature. And even though he was writing at that level of volume, so, you know, through the various circles in London, Frost gets connected with Thomas and, and they meet and they just have preliminary conversations about, about Frost's work and Thomas reads some of Frost's poems. You know, it sounds like they just had a meeting of the minds. Mm. Thomas admired his poems. They both loved to go for these long walks and, and so they just kind of hit it off. It seems as though they both inspired each other in their writing. And Thomas seems to have seen something in Frost's poems that others had missed. I think the simplicity of the diction. Mm. I mean, we have to remember mm-hmm. in 1912, a lot of the most popular poetry of the day was very formal, high-toned kind of Victorian language, very flowery, strict in its meter and its themes, you know, maybe patriotic kinds of poems and so on. Still coming out of uh, Tennyson school. Precisely, yeah, yeah, exactly. So here's Frost, who um, writes with a kind of simplicity of diction and really attends to the character uh, that he's trying to write about. So mm. if you read Frost's poems, the, the speakers are so distinctive. Mm-hmm. You really feel like you get a sense of who's speaking, and it's just 
a person like you might meet on a street. Or if, if Frost is writing his kind of farming poems, you get the sense that here's a, here's a farmer who's speaking this poem. And so that simplicity and everydayness to the language, I think, is something that that um, Thomas was interested in. And then Frost had this notion, his main kind of poetic idea at the time was something that he called the sound of sense, mm. mm-hmm. which is uh, the basic idea there is that the sound of the language, whether we hear what the words are themselves and actually understand the content of the ideas, the sound of the words, the rising and falling of the language, this kind of thing, communicates a certain sense. Mm-hmm. So if you hear, uh, Frost's big example was, if you heard someone having a conversation behind a, wa- behind a door, and you can hear the, the voices rise and fall and so on, but you can't hear the words that are actually being spoken, you still get a sense of how that conversation is going, you know, which of the two speakers is, uh, has, a, has a high emotional level, this kind of thing. So right. that's a, the rhythm and the sound of language actually communicate sense independent of the the ideas themselves. So Frost was uh, trying to capture some of that, the arc of emotion and the sound of his language without being completely tied to the Tennyson school of, you know, the formality of the language, the high-toned diction and so on. And so it would be less tied maybe to meter than it would be to the phrase. I think that's true, and that's something that we associate often with modern poetry, you know, the, the breaking away from formal meter. Mm-hmm. But Frost always wrote in meter. He always, uh, you know, he famously said that trying to write free verse where you're not actually writing in, in, in formal meter would be like trying to play tennis without a net. Mm-hmm. So Frost always retained the idea that poetry was something that you wrote in a formal meter, but within that, he did things like extended the sound of a phrase over the the line break, so that even though it's a it's a particular number of uh, metrical beats in a, in a line, you might it, it sounds more like natural speech. Right. And it's something that Wordsworth was doing a um, hundred years earlier. You know. So it'd be like he liked meter because it would give you a bit of structure, some rules. It would make it. Uh, sort of an organizational tool, but on the other hand, you don't want to let meter push you around. That's right. And and ultimately, what's most important is the the speaker who's speaking. We have to get some sense of who they are, and also the the simplicity of the of the diction and the everydayness of the of the content is something Frost was interested in. And this is something that Thomas immediately latched onto mm. in his many books of nature writing that he'd been doing. He, he was interested in English landscapes and in kind of English characters. He, he'd take these long bicycle trips across the English countryside and he'd meet these country innkeepers and, and so on. And he would be really interested in these kinds of country figures. It sounds like Thomas had the idea of the importance of sound and, and diction. And he was actually had put a lot of that into his prose. Thomas was interested, I think, in poetry, and he wrote very well when he would do these reviews of poetry, but he hadn't written any poems himself by the time he met Frost. Mm. Or at mm-hmm. least he hadn't published any. He, if, he, if he had any, they were in his private journals and so on. But he communicated to, to Frost that he was interested in poetry himself, and Frost encouraged him to, to begin simply by finding passages in his prose works that he could lineate as poetry mm. um, and see if he could kind of find poems out of these prose works. So the rhythms and the the kinds of 
diction that Frost is doing in his work, Thomas is pursuing the same thing in the in in the prose, and Frost encourages him to actually just try to try to translate that into poems. I understand that he found seventy five poems like that in six months. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard that particular figure, but um, yeah, I I think he did find a beginning at doing that. And once he started to write his own poems, he found an energy in his writing that he had kind of lost. I mean, here I think of Thomas as somebody who was deeply burned out as a writer. He mm-hmm. had children who he needed to support and a wife. And so he's writing and writing and writing constantly these reviews and the prose works and books on commission and so on. And then Frost kind of inspires him to, to explore poetry and he finds a new energy in his writing. He's right. He, he, he's spending, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours a day working on his poems. And I think it really woke him up in a new way or something. You hear it uh, in 1912. He's, you know, 40 years old. Right. Okay. And now we're coming up to the time when World War One begins, which is going to have a, it'd be a huge turning point for both men. And before that, there was an incident that also became extremely significant, especially for Thomas. And I'm talking about the incident in the woods with the gamekeeper. Right. So Frost was living in Gloucestershire in a cottage on, he was basically subletting a cottage of another English poet, um, this guy Lassels Abercrombie. And the cottage that he was subletting was on a much larger plot of land that was owned by a kind of English lord. Mm-hmm. Abercrombie, from whom Frost was subletting this cottage, was given permission to range, walk anywhere he wanted over the entire estate and no problems. Mm-hmm. Frost hadn't gotten, or Frost understood that he had received that same permission. With the sublet. Right. With the sublet, he could walk <laughs> and go wherever he wanted, right? Um, but it turned out that he hadn't, and so Frost and Thomas would take these long walks. Uh, that was something that they did throughout their friendship, and they encountered the gamekeeper, whose job it was to make sure that nobody was trespassing on the grounds. And they told him to, uh, the gamekeeper told the two of them that they needed to clear out, and Frost tried to explain that uh, as a subletter, he was entitled to roam these le- these grounds wherever he wanted. Mm-hmm. And the gamekeeper got energized and uh, actually threw a rifle at Frost and Thomas. And Frost, apparently they walked away at first, but Frost, as they're walking away, Frost is getting angrier and angrier. You know, I really should have done something. And he storms back and he pounds on the door of the gamekeeper's cottage. <laughs> and he says, you know, gives him what for. In the, you know, in the fracas, it sounds like Thomas very much cowered in the background and didn't stand up to the gamekeeper and let Frost be the kind of aggressor and this kind of thing. Right. This was a huge event, it turns out, in, in Thomas's life because he felt like this was an instance of his cowardice, that he hadn't stood up and he never would stand up to anybody like that. And he really seems to have internalized it as, a, as an instance of, of cowardice. Uh, and so it's almost like it, this maybe never would have come up for him except that he had found this friend in Robert Frost that he so admired and he he valued their friendship so much and then it seemed to expose for him this area where he, he then found himself lacking a bit, which is he didn't have Frost's personal courage. I mean, that's an, an interesting way of putting it. I, I, I mean, I think in some ways Thomas already, uh, you know, whether or not he had ever met Frost, he was somebody who was plagued by depression and, mm. and mm-hmm. he 
he it was in his character he would have realized one way or another that this was a shortcoming that he had or you know i i think in some ways he was bound to find shortcomings in himself right so i i i don't look at this incident as an example of thomas's cowardice being confirmed but it's just a characteristic instance of he's looking for things about himself that are you know not good enough right the cowardice get uh, what he perceived as his own cowardice gets him thinking about um needing to sign up for the war when the war when the war happens in 1914 he begins to think very seriously that he needs to enlist even though at first he thought you know obviously I'm over 40 I I'm not uh, I have no legal obligation to enlist but he begins to think that it's something that he has to do and and, and largely it has to do with showing that he does have that he's not a coward right and let's let's get there in a minute what he decides to ultimately do but before that, let's talk about the Frost poem, which might be one of the most popular poems in American literature, really. No uh, doubt. It's, yeah. it's, you know, frequently anthologized. It's on all kinds of reading lists, and it's much loved. And, and I think it, you know, I imagine it framed in a lot of households and, and that kind of thing. We're talking about the poem, The Road Not Taken. My students write about it all the time. <laughs> And if there's anything, you know, we were talking before about Frost and and Thomas and pressing the point of Thomas's something in his character that might be a little more wavering or something. In fact, Frost kind of viewed this poem as making that point and and he urged that reading upon Thomas. Right. So, I mean, we should read the poem out probably, but I mean, the basic gist of the poem is, as as listeners will know, is um, the speaker comes to a divergence in the wood and can't decide which path to go down and finally chooses the road less taken. And the the last line of the poem, you know, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. And we often want to read this poem as... Um, oh, wait, wait. Before you do that, before you do that, let's read the poem. And okay, then, and then yep, and then we'll talk through the uh, the standard interpretation and then the ways that that gets complicated by the poem. Sounds good. Okay. So do you want to read it out? Or? Um, I will let you, I will defer to the professor of <laughs> English poetry. <laughs> right. Okay. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Mm. Okay. Beautiful reading. So I think if I were to summarize what I think most people take away from this, it's follow your own path, be stubborn, don't do what everyone else is doing, and someday you'll look back on your life and you'll be glad that you were a, a rugged individual. Absolutely. Yeah. 
But even if we pursue that reading but look more closely at the poem, we start to realize that there are some weird moments in the poem, some yeah. strangenesses in the poem that complicate that reading, even before we know anything about Frost and Thomas. For, for example, you know, in the first stanza when he says, he looks down one path as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair. In other words, the two roads seem uh, about the same. Yeah. It's not like he's taking the one that uh, no one had ever walked on before. It's not like he's making this incredibly courageous choice. In other words, the choice as it appears to him at first is, you know, these are two paths that are more or less the same. Yeah. And then he, he um, says yeah. that. He says, uh, I took the one having perhaps a better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Then he says, though, as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. Right. So there and really wasn't that. much difference. It's not as if one was crowded and busy and easy and that was the easy one to take. And he took the the harder path or the right. the one that everyone else had ignored. It It basically turned out they were about the same. And it was basically an arbitrary choice. He just picked one. Yeah. And he says, you know, I'm going to keep one for another day. Uh, I'll come back and I'll do the other path. Turns out, he, he says, I knowing, I know, knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. Okay. So, so at this point, he's chosen it. It's arbitrary. And he's basically saying there was not really much of a difference. And then the move that he could make, that the speaker could make, is to basically say, this just goes to show that you can you can arrive at your destination by any number of different paths, and you really shouldn't feel bad about which one you choose, and don't don't hesitate to make decisions because in the end, you know it's it's going to be one or the other. But that's not what the speaker does in the last stanza, right? Right. Well, I mean, he he ultimately ends with the line we all remember, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. But I'm interested in the beginning of that last stanza. Yeah. He says, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. In other words, he foresees this kind yep. of melancholy looking back on this, like somebody saying, oh, not able to, not able to, um, just accept and live with the decision to choose one path over the other, but still chewing it over years and years later right. with a sigh, you know, two roads, and I took this one less traveled by. So, yeah, in that last stanza, there's not this, the the kind of confidence that I think we often want to Im impute to the poem. That there's not, this is not somebody who's saying, I was a rugged individual, and boy, that was the best thing I ever did. He seems to be saying there's a couple of different paths. You can really dither about which one you take, and the real problem is that down the road, years and years later, you'll still be having this regret about which one you took, and it's pointless. It's po right. pointless regret. And yeah, whether and like I say, even if we know nothing about Frost's relationship with Thomas, if you read the poem kind of carefully and just look at some of these strange and problematic passages, you can find that already. Right. But this is not most obviously a poem about about being an iconoclast and proud of it it's it's more about the idea of dithering and that and and the idea of regret comes into the poem and poor thomas so my my understanding of this is that thomas didn't really understand it uh in the way that frost probably intended and frost kept writing him letter after letter saying take another look take another look and yeah. then he finally it finally dawned on thomas what frost was talking about which is that 
that this poem was inspired in a sense by Thomas as uh, the type of person who was going to feel this regret no matter which path he had taken. Yeah, and it, it sounds like on many of their paths, um, or many of their walks together, the conversation often was about, should I do this or should I do, should I do that? Um, Thomas trying to, to work out some decision. For example, Frost wanted Thomas to come back to America with him. Mm. Um, and pursue a life of poetry. And Thomas thought was, that was a great idea, but, and we've all met people like this. He, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? I'm not, it's a great idea, but I'm not sure I should do it. So Thomas is just an inveterate ditherer and, uh, not able to pursue a path in life with the kind of confidence that Frost did. I mean, remember, Frost is the one who throws a dart at the map and ends up, uh, heading for England within, right. uh, within a couple of months. <laughs> England or Vancouver, one or the other. Right. right. Uh, Okay, so then World War I breaks out. England declares war on Germany. And as you say, Frost, within six months, Frost flees back to America. He actually takes Thomas's older son with him. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that Thomas will soon follow. The two of mm-hmm. them are going to farm and write poetry and teach. And then... Thomas, whether it's because of this incident with the gamekeeper or or because the epiphany of seeing himself in this poem, The Road Not Taken, or something else, Thomas decides to take a different path. Well, he enlists uh, in the artist's rifles um, mm. and just felt that he needed to do this, a way of not, I mean, he explicitly says that he's not particularly patriotic, that he has no hatred for the Germans. Um, but it's just, I think it was more of a personal choice of expressing some sort of definitive path in life, you know, renouncing that cowardice that he was afraid he, mm. he had. So he enlists in the artist rifles at his age and spends a good deal, a, a couple of months in 1916 at, you know, still in England, uh, at officers training camp and doing things like teaching classes on map reading and so on. But then finally he is deployed in France. And yeah, within a couple of months, he was he was killed in action. Hmm. So throughout that time, there are occasional letters between Thomas and Frost where he is talking about the plan of going to America after the war ends and joining Frost and and uh, writing together and so on uh, with his family. But that was not to be. Hmm. It's a whole side of the poem, The Road Not Taken. I I didn't know anything about this story before, and I don't think I'll ever be able to read the poem in the same way, or even really be able to read Frost without thinking about Edward Thomas in, in some sense. And do we know what Frost thought about this? I mean, was he devastated? Did he feel personally responsible? Or was this, I mean, I guess they, at the time, there with, with uh, the war and everything, there was a lot of loss and and devastation and and maybe this was just part of how life was in those years yeah i mean i don't think frost took blame upon himself i think he was devastated this friendship was extremely close for both both men Mm -hmm. um and i think they both saw it as vitally important to their writing and brotherly brotherly no no question about it yeah yeah but there doesn't seemed to be good evidence that Frost blamed himself for Thomas's death. As you say, there were there were other plenty of other friends of Frost that he had made when he was in England who who also had died. So mm-hmm. 
I don't think Frost took it in that in that particular way. Although he, uh, you know, he was devastated by Thomas's death. Yeah. Okay. And so, can we can do we read other Frost poems in a different way based on what we know of him and Thomas, or do we view Thomas in a different way, or how do we what do we take from this? Well, it really is fascinating. My students, as I said, love to write about the road not taken. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, it's interesting. You you want to share this story, the story of its genesis, which is well documented in the letters and so on. But at the same time, you want students to be able to to read the poem on its own terms. And you you as, you know now you as you're saying, we don't read the poem the same way anymore now that we know the back the back story. Mm-hmm. And I I kind of want to preserve for my students the ability, you know, their freedom to read this poem carefully without having all of that. Right. Um, but I, if I anything, let me just yeah. jump in there. If anything, what this does is tells you, uh, well, clearly we can't conflate the speaker and Frost here because Frost was writing as a character. I mean, no, he, absolutely. he was writing as a person who would uh, regret this someday, but f- that was not Frost in the story of Frost and Thomas. Right. And I think it's true that in other Frost poems, he inhabits speakers and characters in in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. One thing we want to do, I think, often is turn Frost into a kind of grandma's sampler uh, mm-hmm. poet. You know, as you say, you know, frame it and put it above the p- the piano or something. Here's somebody with kind of countrified wisdom or something like that. Mm-hmm. But so many of Frost's poems repay this careful attention and the complexity that you find when you read them carefully it kind of argues against the simple country wisdom idea right and it it seems like and and when i say i don't think i can read the poem in the same way i think i see more of a depth of feeling there than i would have uh had i not known the story mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting i mean i i I think Frost is an astonishing poet, and the more I know about the darkness underpinning so many of his poems, the more I like them. I, I like them. Mm-hmm. They may have this veneer on the out, uh, on the outside of classic American go-getter kind of attitude, but um, so many of them have this dark, melancholy tinge beneath it that gives it such a greater depth and complexity. Ah, well, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, Professor Bill Hogan, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that a great story? My thanks to Professor Bill Hogan, our old friend, for walking us through it. There's a road that should be taken, a little more often, the Professor Bill Road, lit by muses of fire and lined with poetic wonders. Destination, knowledge and wisdom, just around the bend. We'll try to have Professor Hogan back again soon. I know you were calling for him. The clamor was becoming a little deafening. I'm glad we could invite him back, and I'm glad he agreed. We'll be back again soon to some very good episodes in the works. Please subscribe if you haven't already, and tell all your friends and all your enemies, or at least half your enemies, that they should subscribe as well. Is that too much to ask? Is it too much to 
insist upon? How about to beg? Is it too much to beg? I ain't too proud to do that, sweet darling. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.